Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future. Hello, I'm Dominic Cobson, co-founder of Future of Finance. My guest today is Jack McDonald, CEO of Standard Custody and Trust, the polysign subsidiary that provides a blockchain-based institutional-grade custody service for investment managers investing in or trading cryptocurrencies and security tokens. Jack, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Now, independent institutional custody has been in rather short supply in the cryptocurrency industry. Uh, that's made it very hard for institutional investors to, uh, um, particularly most of them are obliged to use an independent custodian, it's made it rather hard for them to invest uh, in the asset class. Um, and I guess remains a problem in security tokens as well. So what are, what are the institutional asset managers that you talk to telling you about what they need in terms of a custody service? Well, as you rightly point out, this industry has been evolving and there's been a shortage of, of true enterprise grade institutional custodians. The industry really started uh, backing retail investors and it's only more recently that institutions have expressed an interest in investing into the space. And what they need is a custodian or service provider more broadly speaking that understands what the operational due diligence requirements are for institutions. And so it comes down to scalability, obviously security, which is table stakes in the industry. Uh, they are looking for applications or solutions that plug into the rest of their operational workflows. And very importantly, they need a service provider that is heavily regulated as well as insured. And at standard custody, we check all those boxes and then some. You've also raised quite a lot of money, $53 million, if I'm, I'm right to say. Now, what's We the... actually raised a little more. Uh, the, the Series B round, which we just closed at $60 million for a total of $88 million that we've raised to date. Okay, so even more than I thought. Uh, clearly, you've convinced some investors that you've got uh, some big opportunities in front of you. Can you divide those between the short-term opportunities and the long-term opportunities? Sure. The, the short-term opportunities and really the purpose of the Series B raise was to bring our standard custody business to the market. Uh, and that includes everything from uh, hiring out uh, the, the balance of the client-facing team, sales, operations, client success, compliance, uh, also posting some regulatory capital. It's not cheap to do business in New York. And also, very importantly, to fund the future development of uh, our blockchain initiatives, both for standard custody as well as a broader application that we have with the parent company uh, in PolySign to build out a settlement network uh, for cross-chain interoperable transfer of assets. So a lot of, of R&D goes into that. Uh, engineers are in high demand these days and they tend to be uh, rather expensive. So we'll put the money to good use. We also have very much global aspirations and want to have boots on the ground, both from a development standpoint, as well as a client-facing standpoint in, in Europe and Asia. One of the biggest investors in that 80-odd million is, is Cowan, the investment bank. Uh, and I, uh, I assume that they are starting to see their investment management clients, their hedge funds that they service and their prime brokerage business and elsewhere are actually active uh, in the cryptocurrency trading and investment. Do you think uh, that kind of combination, that sort of sell-side, buy-side combination can drive growth in the security token markets as well? No, no question about it. We've had over 50 calls with, with Cowan clients since we announced our partnership at the end of May. And, and the over, overriding theme of those conversations is a desire to do business with known counterparties. Having a familiar face across the table, if you will, 
has been a real catalyst for institutions to take a step forward to invest into the digital asset marketplace. And when I say digital asset, I include not only cryptocurrencies, non-sovereign backed virtual currencies, but also a full range of other types of digital assets that include security tokens, um, you know, having a fractional interest in a real estate property or a, a tokenized interest in a private company or a VC fund are all very much of interest to institutional investors gaining more liquidity, more transparency, and more operational efficiency. And they want to do that through trusted counterparties, again, that are insured, that are regulated. And there's been a real dearth of those out there. Our partnership with Cowan will literally be the first uh, investment bank-sponsored partnership that enters into the digital asset space. So very, very exciting. Uh, we couldn't be happier with the partnership with Cowan. I find them to be an unbelievably uh, agile, enthusiastic uh, organization, uh, they've been around for over 100 years, so a very trusted brand uh, in the marketplace, but very entrepreneurial as well. So mm -hmm. a win-win. Yeah, yeah, we've enjoyed working with them ourselves. Now, now you, you mentioned um, a minute ago that you'd received a license from the New York State Department of Financial Services to operate as a, as a trust company. I hardly dare to ask this question, but why did getting a license from uh, the New York uh, DFS make more sense to you than getting a license from FINRA or the CFTC or the OCC or the SEC? There's so many regulations in the US. It's quite difficult for us uh, not living there to, to work out why there are so many, but why did, why did you opt for, for the DFS over those other bodies? Well, it's certainly an alphabet soup of, of regulatory uh, uh, bodies there. And I think the taxonomy of the digital asset ecosystem plays into that. Uh, there is a lack of uniform view as to what these assets are. Are they securities? Are they commodities? Uh, are they currencies? And the different regulatory bodies have different jurisdiction uh, in the US. We took a step back and wanted to build a institutional grade custodian that could uh, act as a qualified custodian, represent ourselves as a qualified custodian for institutional investors. And while obviously a global market that we will be serving in the US alone uh, under the 1940s Act, uh, the Investment Advisor Act, you need to use a qualified custodian if you are a fiduciary managing more than 150 million of, of assets. And so what that means in brass tacks for traditional assets in the US is you could either be a broker dealer which is regulated by FINRA. You can be a futures commodity merchant regulated by the CFTC, or you could be a trust bank regulated on a state-by-state -state basis. To date, for all intents and purposes, FINRA has not allowed any broker dealers to custody digital assets, virtual currencies, et cetera. So that window is closed. The CFTC is applicable if all you want to service is commodities and commodity futures, whereas our remit was broader than that. So if all we wanted to do was custody Bitcoin futures, we could have gone to the CFTC, but because of our, our broader ambition, the state regulated trust banks was really the only way to go. And there's been three or four states that have given these licenses out, Nevada, South Dakota, Wyoming, and then New York. Uh, New York by far being the toughest hurdle uh, to overcome the highest regulatory capital requirements, the most stringent crime and cyber uh, policies in the land. So it took more time, it took more money, but we think ultimately having that credential will afford us the opportunity to work with the best asset managers uh, on the planet. And so now we're starting to look at what the uh, similar sort of, of regulatory requirements will be outside the US. Uh -huh. Just to be clear, that uh, New York license entitles you to offer the services nationwide in the United States, does it? 
I wish it did. It uh, All these states have reciprocity with other states. So with the New York Charter, we are allowed to support another 18 or 19 states. And so we're in the process of getting a money transmitter license for the balance of the states that do regulate digital assets and crypto and require an MTL or money transmitter license. There are some states like California that do not currently regulate it. And so you can operate in those states without a money transmitter license. So Mm-hmm. Uh, within the next six months or so, we hope to be covering the the, the bulk of the uh, of the U.S. And how liberal or restrictive is the license? You know, what services does it entitle you to provide? We're a limited purpose trust company. A trust bank is what we are. And that charter is somewhat dependent upon what the application is that we put in. So our initial application asked for regulatory permission to provide custody and escrow services for a broad range of digital assets. And that's what we've been chartered to do. Uh, we're in the process of going back to uh, New York Department of Financial Services to broaden our mandate to support some of the other DeFi applications uh, that exist out there. So it will be an evolving charter and an evolving relationship with the regulators. They wanna make sure that we are thoughtful in terms of our plan to add new services or new assets. And so there will be an ongoing conversation with them as we uh, evolve into this. Ultimately. Uh, we could broaden the charter, <clears throat> excuse me, to support uh, fiat currency as well. Our current charter, part of that limited purpose uh, moniker is that we do not custody uh, cash or fiat currency uh, for our customers. We do that through partnerships with other other uh, deposit-taking banks. It, it, you describe it as a limited purpose uh, bank. It didn't make sense to go for a full banking license. Well, I think the it's all relative. Um we do have a full, um, we are a bank, uh, but that limited purpose we felt adequately met the needs for what we were looking to do strategically with the organization at this time. Uh-huh. Now you mentioned Wyoming as well, which has uh, attained sort of um, poster child status uh, in the industry and, and almost everything you read emphasizes this bailment law. So you can continue to, to control your your assets even when they're in, in custody. You weren't tempted, uh, you know, you've explained very clearly that, that the going to the New York process was the most demanding uh, and therefore offered the maximum assurance to the potential client base you had. But you must have looked at, at Wyoming and, and Nevada and these other places and, and decided whatever they offered wasn't uh, sufficiently attractive to, to warrant going there as well. Does it even make sense to think about getting additional licenses from them or do they offer any advantages which, which made sense to you? Well, I think speed to market was certainly an advantage that we could have gone to uh, with there. Our, our view was that we wanted to ultimately build a, a solution that would allow us to be able to work with other New York regulated financial institutions. So, for example, acting as a sub custodian for a large global custodian that's regulated in New York, they're going to have to look to other New York regulated financial institutions. And so we can raise our hand uh, and, and be nominated for that. We also felt like coming from New York would be the strongest posture for us to ultimately uh, apply um, if the environment uh, supports it for a national charter from the OCC. And we do think that uh, there would be a halo effect, frankly, from being in New York relative to some of the other jurisdictions, taking nothing away from them. But we just know where the, um, uh, you know, where the concentration of, of institutional uh, asset managers are in the U.S. So had we gone to South Dakota or Wyoming, for example, we would have been precluded from servicing a client in New York unless we went and got a separate bit license from New York. To date, the New York uh, regulators have not been giving out licenses to trust companies that have been chartered in other states. 
um, whether they view that as a, a bit of a, a circuitous route to getting an application in New York as opposed to going direct to New York. So we, we strategically felt like going directly to New York would be most advantageous for us. And we certainly uh, feel comfortable with that decision and are glad we did it. Mm -hmm. Certainly making it sound as if uh, where you get your regulatory license is quite an important competitive no question. Uh, no consideration. Question. No but question. it's quite, it's, it's as you look at it, look at the industry on a sort of global scale, it's quite a, a complex, um, but also quite competitive field now. Um, banks like Avanti and Two Oceans, who did decide to, to go the Wyoming route. Um, we have been talking to Hex Trust and on chain custodian in Asia. We, we, we talk regulated trustology here in the UK. Um, you know, we've seen Northern Trust and Standard Chartered come up with Zodia. We've seen BNY Mellon invest in Fireblocks, and, and we've seen State Street now announce a, a digital unit. So we're seeing the um, the traditional global custodian banks uh, and some of the, the major brokerages getting into this business as well. As you compare yourselves with, with them, what would you say is your chief competitive advantage? There's a lot of uh, content in that question, Dominic. So um, I, let me answer. No, no, no. They're all good points. You know, most importantly, I think our chief competitive advantage uh, is our people and our technology. Uh, we, from a, um, a leadership team standpoint uh, and an overall uh, team perspective, we really approach this from both a traditional capital markets and finance standpoint, as well as from a blockchain cryptography standpoint. We find that many of the competitors are, are very strong in one or the other, but not both. Our founder is Arthur Brito, who is one of the three co-founders of Ripple, responsible for designing and developing the XRP ledger, which compared with Bitcoin basically uh, exceeds every measure around scalability, throughput, speed of transactions, um, uh, cost effectiveness, environmentally friendliness, et cetera. We also have David Schwartz, who is on our board and an investor uh, in the company, a strategic advisor. He's the current CTO and chief cryptographer at Ripple. So these guys are real rock stars in their field. Uh, I come from a traditional finance background, having run a company called Conifer before a successful exit. We have Tim Keeney, whom you know, who uh, casts a very long shadow in this industry, ran all asset servicing at BNY Mellon for a dozen years. So we really feel like we understand how traditional finance and capital markets work, but also uh, really on the cutting edge of cryptography and blockchain. So we bring that to bear. Uh, we are the only custodian in the industry that has a native blockchain at our core. Uh, we think that that's a true differentiator from a security standpoint, but also from a regulatory compliance standpoint. And, and that is objectively uh, different. We also approach the, the whole approval process in a very different way uh, than our competitors by really outsourcing and distributing uh, trust. And so we wanna displace trust with truth and feel like we've done that with our application. The other thing I would note is that, um, you know, the, the big banks are coming out with lots of announcements. I think you're noticeable in your absence if you're not coming out with a statement saying we're going to start providing access to digital uh, asset investment opportunities for our private wealth management or PCS clients. You're noticeable in your absence if you're not putting together a SWAT team of blockchain uh, experts to understand how you are going to, um, you know, adopt this new technology into your organization. Um, what actually happens behind the curtain uh, is different. We've talked to most of the, the larger banks at one form or another at different points, and there's lots of pockets of interest and, and development going on, but it's tough for these large organizations to come up with a unified strategy of, of what they want to do to bring their organization into 
you know, the digital asset age. And I think most of the large service provider banks are trying to decide whether they should build it on their own. Very expensive, time-consuming, shortage of talent, frankly, engineers who want to go work at big banks as opposed to work at startup companies like ours. Do they want to rent some technology, uh, licensed technology like BNY Mellon is doing with Fireblocks and building a solution around that? Or do they want to buy? You know, Do they want to make an acquisition of a, of a Fireblocks or a company like ours? And I happen to think you'll see a, a big M&A boom here in the next three to five years once institutional demand gets to the point where there's no, no turning back. And we've been told through our investment opportunity from some of the large banks that they would rather pay more later than pay um, you know, less and be early. Um, so time will tell. It's an exciting space to be sure. All right. So standard custody and trust being sold to a, a major global custodian bank in a few years' time is, is, is one exit for your investors. It wouldn't shock me. Yeah. Now, you brought up the question of the, of the technology and, and made a very persuasive case. You've got some very smart people working for you who are able to attract engineering talent as well. Uh, since you brought it up, uh, let's talk about it now. You, you mentioned throughput and speed. You've solved those. Now, one of the, the, the classic engineering problem with blockchain is that lack of scalability. Uh, you know, in Bitcoin, it's the five to seven transactions a second. With Ethereum, it's like 16, 17, 18 a, a second. So people have found it very difficult to adapt blockchain technology to institutional scale volumes. You, you, are you saying you've solved it? And if so, how did you solve it? Yeah, um, it's part of the secret sauce, frankly, of, of what we've built uh, with the blockchain. One of the things that we do in our custody solution is we actually run business logic through HSMs or hardware security modules. Uh, that business logic is stored on our on our chain uh, and developed there. We have a proprietary chain. Very importantly, we're not storing any assets on our blockchain, so it's not this centralized private chain that that would concern people. But we built a chain specifically to provide end-to-end -end encryption uh, throughout our process. We store secrets on our chain, and we are able to overcome uh, what's historically been bottlenecks in terms of HSM speed and processing uh, of transactions. Um, Arthur and David spent a lot of time uh, developing it. We were fortunate to be well-funded early on so we could take our time to develop what we believe is a best-in-class solution, something that we believe has impressed the regulators and the insurers in terms of bringing our product to market. Uh, we're the first company that has ever received a de novo license from uh, the New York regulators to, to provide custody. So we did not have a pre-existing business like a Fidelity or a Coinbase. Um, but that's been you know what we've been working on from an engineering standpoint and, and believe that we can support unlimited uh, transaction volume by use of our private blockchain. I detect the influence of, of David Schwartz in what you were saying yes. about end-to-end -end <laughs> encryption yeah. there. Um, I, I think a lot of people listening to this will just be wondering how you've solved that, 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 that key problem about keeping the private keys to these assets secure. Obviously in cryptocurrency, the native assets, it's, if you lose it, it's gone forever. Security tokens, you can replace them and so on, but you still have a, a variant of that of that problem. Can you tell us a bit more about what technologies you're actually using to, to safe keep the assets? The debate here is usually about, is it cold storage? You've stuck it on a USB stick and put it in a safe. Yeah. It's about multi-sig, it's about multi-party computation. Can you tell us a bit more about well, it's what you It's doing? a little bit of all those things. And we've mm -hmm. been um, you know, fortunate to, to witness all the different uh, companies that are evolving different things. And, and I think we have a bias towards developing most of our tech in-house. Mm -hmm. We have, uh, for example, MPC, we met with a bunch of the Israeli uh, MPC companies a number of years ago and decided that we would rather control our own destiny. And so we built our own MPC 
uh, algorithmic uh, logic that we use in our solution. We do use HSMs. Um, we use multiple vendors. We support them in, in various colo facilities. So really want to distribute uh, the risk there. Uh, we use threshold signatures. Uh, we do have a multi-sig component uh, to what we do, both at the client level where transactions are proposed and approved. But then when the approval uh, comes within the four walls of the custodian, typically you would see uh, the custodian then sign off on the, on the transaction. We distribute that risk to third-party verifier firms who are service providers to the industry who essentially uh, get alerted that there is a transaction pending their approval and they would, they would be responsible for reconciling instructions, transfer instructions, essentially in a sharded sort of environment. So uh, you would have one, I would have one, we don't know who each other are. And uh, once the requisite number of approvals come together, then the asset can be transferred. So that's a unique way of doing that. We've got some biometrics involved in terms of video authentication, uh, voice detection, et cetera. So a number of different components that all come together in the symphony of security and all able to move a transaction within three to five minutes max, you know, if all the counterparties are lined up. So designed to be very agile. Uh, we're not a high frequency trading solution. We are developing some hot wallet solutions uh, that could be a non-custodial sort of application. And as I referenced earlier, we're also building out on a separate blockchain, a settlement layer. But our core custody, you can think of as really better than cold storage. Uh, that's the way it's been treated, um, you know, by the regulators and insurers. And uh, we do have a network component. So in the legacy definition of cold storage, uh, we are, are not, but we, you know, we're not the only ones in that regard either. And we think having a network component is actually advantageous in terms of being able to move the asset more fluidly. Well, I'll come back to that point about biometrics in a minute. Can I just ask you one other question? You, you mentioned this in-house bias in your technology. Now, is that a problem? If you're creating a lot of proprietary um, private blockchain technologies, does that make it more difficult to interoperate with other blockchain networks? And it's obviously something you're going to have to do. As yeah, we, we've designed our product from day one to be completely interoperable. Uh, we're not one of those blockchain companies that says we're our blockchains the best move your assets off Bitcoin or Ethereum, et cetera, and move it to us. And we're going to be the best blockchain, the universal source. Um, quite the contrary. We've built our chains to be interoperable. Uh, with other blockchains. And we really want to be essentially a messaging layer or connective tissue between different chains to allow for uh, a better custody and settlement experience uh, cross chain. And so we're, we're asset agnostic and we're, we're blockchain agnostic. Mm -hmm. uh, we do have a, a, a bias towards developing what we feel we can do better um, than, than third-party applications. We also are very mindful of controlling our own, our own destiny uh, David and Arthur are uh, confident in their abilities. They're also humble to know where uh, it makes sense to outsource. So, you know, we, we use a lot of open source code. We um, use, you know, third-party machinery, obviously like, like the HSMs. So there's a, there's a mix of, of third-party vendors as well as uh, in-house, but we're not stitching together a bunch of third-party applications that anybody can buy and bringing that to the market in a wrapper. Uh, we've got core technology being developed in-house, and you know we do think that that's a true differentiator for us. You you use the term uh, trust, no truth, not trust, and you referred to, to biometrics as well. And obviously, the classic blockchain was all about a trustless environment. You're dealing with institutional money. Institutions want to know who their counterparty is, as you pointed out earlier in the shape of uh, in our discussion about Cowan. Now, working out 
who is a trustworthy counterpart um, in the traditional industry has become a very tiresome process in terms of these KYC, AML, CFT sanctions, screening checks, very tiresome, very expensive. Do you have a well-developed view about the value of, of digital identities in digital asset custody? We do. Um, obviously, from a regulatory standpoint, we flock to the highest regulator in the land. So we take that part of our business very seriously. We've invested in, in regulatory compliance really from day one. Um, and so everything we've been built has, has been purposeful uh, around that. One of the applications for this second blockchain uh, we're building is very much, as you suggest, premised on digital identification and delegation of signing authority. And so we think that there are a lot of advancements that will take place in the industry using blockchain technology for identity management uh, and authentication. And so we very much um, prioritize this notion of being able to validate and verify that I am who I say I am and doing that through uh, a number of different applications and then storing in an immutable and auditable way that information on our chain is one of the core applications of our private chain within the custody business. Now, can we go back to, to, to the underlying business? Um, you have this integrated escrow platform. Uh, escrow is a term we hear a lot in, in, in an American context. It sounds rather odd to, to European ears. What's the necessity for that? What's the advantages of it in this marketplace? Well, and, and this um, was quite popular a couple of years ago, and I think it's evolving a little bit more and more now, but this notion of uh, two counterparties who want to trade, uh, who may not um, know one another well and trying to solve for this notion of who goes first. Uh, we can support a transaction, whether it's fiat to crypto, crypto to crypto, or crypto to fiat, uh, and do that within the walled garden of our regulated and insured uh, custodial platform. So it's essentially an off-chain or off-exchange transaction, an OTC transaction, but you can do that in a trusted and insured manner. And so that, that would be the use case for that. All right, I understand. So. Now, if the, if the security token markets uh, take off, security tokens are going to be a bit different from, from cryptocurrencies. They're going to need servicing. Uh, right. And that servicing is going to come through smart contracts, right? So what's your, what's your model here? How are you going to improve on what's, uh, and I guess we'll come to this, how's it going to improve upon what custodian banks are doing already on the asset servicing side in terms of collecting income and tax reclaims and voting proxies and processing corporate actions and so on? And it's all being done by smart contracts. Yeah, at the broadest level, we think we're playing a vital role in replatforming the capital markets as we know them. And we're not going to do that single-handedly by any stretch, but we do believe that there is going to be this evolution, not revolution, but an evolution towards digitizing much of the operational flow of what happens today uh, in the existing global capital markets. So security tokens bring forward the need to modify the asset servicing that exists. Now, both Tim Keeney, whom I referenced earlier, and, and I both come from a broad asset servicing background. And we like to think of this surround sound of services that complement core custody. Core custody in a digital asset sense, as we've been speaking about, requires a whole different level of technology that underpins your whole asset servicing business. And so once you get core custody right, uh, the opportunity exists for you to repurpose all those other service lines that you have, whether it's collateral management, treasury services, fund administration, um, lend, borrow, et cetera. And one of the things we're seeing anecdotally with Cowan is a desire for them to repurpose their capital markets business, their global markets business. They wanna do everything they're doing for uh, you know, analog, if you will, 
traditional equity and, and fixed income markets and do that in digital as well. If you think of digital as being really a new asset class, they want to be a full service bank supporting those assets in the same way that they support the traditional capital markets today. And so we think that we will be a bit of a Trojan horse for large organizations who want to uh, reimagine what their business would look like uh, servicing digital assets, but it all starts with custody. And so that's what we started first with custody, always with an eye towards how these other services would complement that. And ultimately, while we don't think about this on a daily basis, I think the global banks are going to look at firms like ours as a, as a ideal tuck-in acquisition upon which they can build out these other services. Now, security tokens may be in the, in the foothills, but one uh, area where tokenization is, is quite a long way up the mountain now, obviously, is, is DeFi. We've got people just, you know, depositing cryptocurrency, getting tokens in return. Some of them is getting stable coins in return. Is that an opportunity, a short-term opportunity for standard custody and trust? I think it's a long-term transformational opportunity. And I think ultimately, uh, if I look out five to 10 years from now, I think the non-crypto side of the digital asset ecosystem will actually be larger than, than crypto uh, today, if you'll if you'll allow me the definition for cryptocurrency to be a non-sovereign backed currency, and if you think about digital assets to include not only the cryptos, but uh, security tokens, central bank digital currencies, fractional interests, and in, in different assets, private company shares, etc. I think that segment of the market is going to explode. I think we're maybe in the first inning. Uh, I don't know what the cricket analogy of how many innings you guys have over there, but in, in baseball, we have nine innings. So um, uh, I think we're very early on in, in those days. And I think DeFi is a very, very powerful movement where people are seeing the opportunity to really take control of fully servicing the assets that they own and doing that in a uh, more of a peer-to-peer -peer way and, and less in a centralized counterparty way and being able to monetize that. And so it's it's a innovative space. It's early. There's lots of companies that are trying to uh, add value. And we certainly want to be constructive in that regard. And, and we're thinking constantly about other services that we can offer other firms who have a uh, excellence um, that we can partner with. We're not going to do this alone. It's really a community uh, based solution that will ultimately, I think, service the market best. Yeah. Now you're obviously talking to lots of people. Can you tell us a bit about, about the use cases you're actually working on. And I, I asked this question, knowing that in the tokenization space, the two big opportunities that have been identified already are commercial real estate and privately managed assets, which would include private equity and, and VC funds, as well as privately based bonds and all the rest of it. Do you, are those the sort of opportunities you're looking at servicing as well? We, we want to service real world use cases and, and, and develop um, applications that are uh, needed by the market and wanted by the market. We don't want to be a, a technology looking for an application. And uh, to that point, we've been seeking out partners for proof of concepts uh, to assist us with the development of our settlement layer. We have uh, several POCs going on right now. One uh, in your, your backyard there in the UK with a very large global asset manager who believes that the future for their business is going to be developing more products for, as they refer to them, the man and woman on the, on the street who are looking to get access to alternatives, but don't have the legacy appetite from a capital uh, allocation standpoint and from a investment duration to be able to invest in traditional institutional products. And so uh, together with them, we are, we are helping them 
uh, build a digital retail feeder fund into an open-ended institutional real estate fund. And the idea is that ultimately um, retail investors could buy a tokenized interest in this fund. This token would trade on an exchange. So the end investor could get liquidity and, and greater transparency uh, into what they're owning rather than tying up their money, even if they could afford the hurdle, uh, tying up their money for 10 years. And we think that's a real harbinger of things to come. We're working with a, a top five global bank uh, who does a lot of the asset servicing for them. We're the platform essentially that, that is a messaging layer between the issuer of the asset, the transfer agent, the fiat custodian. We're going to be the, uh, the security token custodian. We have an exchange uh, listed in the UK, uh, the first listed exchange for digital asset trading, who is going to trade the token. And so that's one example where we're building out uh, this, this sort of ecosystem. We also have uh, several VC funds that we're talking to uh, here in the US interested in doing a, a POC around a fractional interest in a sleeve of a, of a fund that they have created. And once again, similarly, creating greater access to liquidity and transparency for smaller investors to be able to participate in this type of alternative asset class. So we've got mutual fund managers, if you like, thinking about creating a, a token share class in existing funds. We've got uh, uh, private equity funds looking to, to tokenize a sleeve of a, of a particular fund as well. So um, fund managers of, of all kinds are clearly a, a big opportunity, which you have identified. And that's an industry which, uh, and you'll know this, having worked at, uh, at, at Conifer and seen it at first hand, um, you know, you've got custodians, you've got fund accountants, you've got transfer agents, you've got independent distributors, you've got fund platforms, and, and there's a lot of intermediation in that in that business. So when you start talking to these asset managers about the advantages of doing this, you've, you've been very clear about it, that it's useful in terms of asset gathering. You can reach new types of, of clients, so those men and women in the street. Um, uh, what's, the, what's the real selling point to them from an operational point of view? Certain asset classes outside of vanilla equities and fixed income are equally burdensome for both the buy and the sell side to service. Having run a fund administrator and a broker dealer, I know how difficult it is when, um, relatively speaking, when you get a real estate asset or a private company share, and it just doesn't scale through your operations. You know, we had instances where different VC funds or private equity funds, the fund administrator that we had at Conifer, Different funds could own the same asset, but the valuation and pricing policies that they had called for different marks. So, you know, companies SpaceX could get a mark for, for one investor that would be different than, than another, as opposed to, I've got 20 clients who all own IBM stock. I get one price from the New York Stock Exchange through my Bloomberg feed, and I run it through the whole factory, and everybody gets priced the same, the same way. And so it's almost a, a manual nature that's required by some of these less liquid uh, less transparent asset classes. You have to go out and hire a valuation agent to go and see what the office building at the corner of 57th and Madison Avenue is worth. And uh, that doesn't scale. And so if you can take that, that office building and if you could tokenize it, and now there's a hundred tokens that represent ownership in that, and there's an exchange where that traded, now every time one of those tokens trades, each one of those hundred token holders get a new mark it's transparent. And if you were doing the valuation or accounting uh, for that, you would be able to scale that in the same way that you, you scale efficiently uh, your, your equity uh, processing business. So I guarantee you, Dominic, if you went and talked to the BNY Mellons, the State Streets, the cities, you name it, 
and looked at their asset servicing business, they're all looking at a business that is under pressure from a fee perspective, while the costs are going up and the fees are going down. And yet more and more investors are trying to invest into these asset classes. So mm -hmm. knowing that we identified a couple of asset classes that really represent the low hanging fruit here that would benefit by greater transparency and, and, and um, liquidity, frankly. Yeah, no, I see how liquidity actually makes life easier on the operational side as well. For both the buy and the sell yeah. side though, to your, to your question. Yeah, yeah. Now, looking forward, is your focus going to remain institutional or are you thinking in the long run of, of servicing retail business? We, we've talked about men and women in the street. Is that? Yeah, we're really institutionally focused. You know, we have a, an extremely robust uh, infrastructure that we've built. And um, while it certainly could support a retail sort of flow, our customers are more at the enterprise level. Now, that said, many of the customers that we're talking to today and will, will likely be supporting in the near future have a retail business. Uh, we'd rather have them service the last mile, if you will, uh, of the retail flow, but us look at them as a institutional counterpart, almost as a treasury uh, account for us that would value, frankly, the uh, sort of, of scalability and security thresholds that we've built. And then the, they can then service an uh, unlimited number of customers on their end but we would rather face off against them than the individual uh, retail client. All that said, this industry changes quickly. So as far as, as I can see, th th that's my answer, but uh, I'm also humble enough to know that, that the sands change quickly here. Now, I think you've said this, but you are planning to offer a service outside the United States. You plan absolutely. to go global with this, yeah? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, part of the um, beauty of the crypto markets, uh, blessing and a curse, you know, you can never sleep um, 24 seven markets, you know, no holidays, no breaks, no weekends. Um, so it, it can be taxing, uh, for those of us in the industry, but it represents a major opportunity. And, uh, we would be, um, I think remiss in not trying to service the globe with our solutions. Do you know when you're going to start or where you're going to start? You're going to come to London or. Oh yeah, we, we definitely are already, um, with the POC that we've got going on in the UK. Uh, we're looking at establishing a European, uh, corporate presence as we speak. Uh, we've got investors in, in Europe and in Asia, and they were strategically uh, chosen in part because of the breadth uh, that they can help us, um, you know, generate. Cowan's got a presence in the US, I'm, I'm sorry, in the UK. Uh, so we're looking to leverage that relationship. Blockchain.com, another investor in our Series B, uh, a major presence outside the US, uh, particularly in Europe, uh, that we're looking to leverage. So we very much have a global view in terms of how our business will evolve. Mm -hmm. Now, you've mentioned how difficult it is for the, the global custodian banks to, to attract the engineering talent they need to I don't know, turn such large organizations around to point them in different directions easily. They're not naturally nimble, are they? So when you, when you talk to them, or when they ask you questions about what you're doing, and maybe in five years time, they can buy you and get what they need. But in the, in the, over the next three to five years, what's your message to them? Is this going to be all about how it's going to save them money? Is it going to be something they have to do? Or are they going to be driven under business? Is it a huge revenue opportunity? What, what's the positive or negative message for global custodian banks wondering what to do about what's happening in crypto, in DeFi, in security tokens? I think it's all the above. I wouldn't suggest we're going to drive them out of business, but it's certainly speed to market. It is gaining access to leading technology and, and gaining access to leading developers, frankly. And so I think the big banks are trying to anticipate when demand for these types of products and services is going to hit their front front screen. And 
It's starting to happen, clearly. Um, some of the largest, because we're talking to them, uh, asset managers are looking for solutions and you can't build this type of solution overnight. And so whether you start with us as a sub-custodial relationship or whether you license our technology uh, as more of a kind of um, uh, precursor to having your own uh, technology, I think those are the conversations that I see us having today and will continue to have uh, into the future. So we're in this kind of preliminary um, phase, I think, for a lot of the big banks, again, as they're trying to think and leadership changes and there's different pockets within the organization who have different needs, different regional focuses, but whether they build it, whether they license or rent it, or whether they buy it, you know, seems to be a topic of conversation at most of the large banks. And we would say license our technology or, support, or appoint us as a sub-custodian where you can put your wrapper around us, you can go to market, you can service your clients, and you know we'll we'll see where that takes us. But uh, we're very interested in those types of relationships. Now, Jack, one one last question for you: the the big banks seem to have got there in terms of cryptocurrency. They've got buy side clients forcing them to develop products to service them in that area. Now, security tokens are still very very small. My question to you is how big could they get and how quickly? And I ask you that question in the light of um, an organization as conservative as SWIFT, for example, has said that it thinks that security tokens could be half the size of, of the security markets today within five or, or 10 years. If you consider the equity markets around the world are now 100 trillion, the bond markets are 90 or 100 trillion, you know, even if they were 10% the size of it, you're talking about $20 trillion opportunity. What's your guess about how big the security token markets could get and how quickly they could get that big? I think SWIFT could be sandbagging their answer. I think I, I very much agree with them. I think the whole capital markets, as we know, it is going to be transformed and is going to be digitized 10 years from now. Now, how that's going to look two or five years from now has yet to be seen, but the world is absolutely changing. Um, you know, all the analogies around the train has left the station, et cetera. It is undeniable in my mind that the world is going digital um, in terms of, of capital markets specifically, and that um, asset servicing as we know it will fundamentally change. There's no reason we have to have T plus two settlement uh, in the US there, other than having been built on legacy infrastructure and architecture. Uh, there's also, I think, a vested interest in, in having a delayed settlement period. There's a lot of hands in the cookie jar who enjoy the float. Uh, over that time. And there are other fundamental reasons from a, you know, investor protection reason why having a delayed settlement can have merit. But I think fundamentally our ecosystem in capital markets globally will operate much more efficiently and accrue to the benefit of end investors. If we could utilize distributed ledger technology and blockchain technology across the board, if we can tokenize and digitize securities, non-security assets, bring greater transparency and liquidity to the marketplace, open up investable assets to a broader range of, of people and doing that in a very regulated and, and compliant way. I think the future is extremely bright. I think it's a super exciting time to be in this industry and I couldn't be happier uh, to be at the helm of standard custody. Jack McDonald, thank you very much. 